Hello, goalies. This is Emily, your favorite friend from Book Squad Goals. I know I'm your favorite. Um, I am very excited to announce that later on in this episode, we will be featuring an interview with Kelly Watt, author of Mad Dog. I'm really excited to be featuring this author in this book. Just a quick note, trigger warning for sexual assault and child abuse. These are two topics that we will be discussing. So we will, in the show notes, put the minute marker where this interview starts. If this is something that you don't want to listen to, you can skip it. Um, but I really hope you'll listen to it, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts about our discussion. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sip a coffee right when you said hello. So I just went, mm, yay. Yeah, so that was That's fine. That <laughs> However, you say hello, hello. Mm. <laughs> Welcome to Book Squad Goals. Today, we are talking about Stephen King's latest novella, Elevation. And we're going to spoil it. So that's your mm-hmm. warning. But literally, you could pause this and go read it because it's. Less than 150 pages. 100 pages, yeah. So, take an hour or so. Knock that out. Come back. Welcome back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, for an intro question, I thought we never read anything short. So, let's talk about our favorite novellas or short stories. Doesn't have to be this one. (laughs) Can be a different one. (laughs) This is hard. I should have looked at this earlier and realized what it was going to be. Oh God! Mm, I I've got one. This is Mary. I'm gonna say my favorite novella of the moment is Binti by Nettie Okorafor. Oh, yeah. I taught it last semester. Uh, Nettie Okorafor writes Nigerian African futurism. Um, she is super talented at like weaving science fiction into traditional African mythology in a really cool and inventive way. And she also just has like a wonderful writing voice. Um, Binti is about a young girl named Binti who leaves her home to attend college at a prestigious like intergalactic university. However, the ship she's on gets taken over by aliens and everybody gets killed. <laughs> so the novella is essentially like her trying to figure out why did these aliens kill everyone? Why didn't she die? What can she do to fix it? So, and it's like really tight. It's like 90 pages. And there's also two other books. It's like a little novella trilogy, but I haven't read the other ones. Nice. Sadly. Mm. Cool. But it's good. Um, I can go next. Um, this is Emily. I'm going to say... So, first of all, I don't read a lot of um, short stories, but I've been trying to read more just because I'm just a really big fan of novels. Like, I Mm -hmm. like 
sticking with this story for a little bit longer, but not too long. Because once it gets around 500 pages, I'm out. I got a sweet spot, yeah. you know. But um, I do like a lot of short stories that I have read, but my favorite one is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Look, it's a classic. It's a classic. And the reason it's my favorite is because it really tears down two things that I hate, which is uh, doctors and men. (laughs) So, you know, just kind of talking about how both of those things are kind of bullshit. Um, No, but seriously, like it's, you know, it's a feminist classic and it's awesome. And if you haven't read it, it's basically free everywhere. You can just like go online and re- read it real fast. It's really great. So, yeah. That's mine. Just Google Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I haven't read that in so long. Yeah. It'll be there. But It'll come up. It is one that's so stuck good. with me. Which sometimes short fiction doesn't. It's like, I know I've read a bunch of short stories, but I can't yeah, remember Yeah, and them. that's the thing. <laughs> but I remember yeah. that one. That's the thing. It really does stick with you. And, you know, like, very spooky imagery, which is another thing, like, I'll, I'll take all day, you know. So. so, I was, like I said, a lot of them don't stick with me for some reason, shorter things. But um, a few that have are other Stephen yes. King ones. <laughs> so, I'm just going to talk he about those. He's very good at short stories. They're ones that I liked better than this one. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but there is a... His collection, um, Different Seasons, is four novellas, and all of them are great. Um, and three of them have been turned into movies that are also good to pretty good to, to really good. So one of those is The Body, which became Stand By Me. It's a really great yes. novella. Um, mm-hmm. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which obviously became Shawshank Redemption. Um, and then Apt Pupil, which became a movie with Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, the movie's not so good, but the <laughs> yeah, but um, for some reason, apt pupil really stuck with me just because it's so disturbing. Um, all three of those though are are ones that come to mind, but of those, I just really remember reading apt pupil and being like, "This is fucked up." I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> That's all. Nice. Um, I finally figured out the one I was thinking of. I'm like so not a, even though I enjoy reading short stories a lot, I'm so not well versed in them at all. Um, and I am even less well versed in novellas. I feel like this might be the, like Elevation might be the only novella technically that I have ever read. Um, so I would love to read more of them though. Cause it's such a, such a, sh- maybe we should make that a goal. Yeah. Such a short, to do, easy like, a short story collection. Or- yeah, I feel like that would be fun. Um, something to consider for the future. Anyway, um, the one time that I did read a lot of short stories was when I took this like the only write like fiction writing class I ever took in college, um, and my teacher like picked out like every single story she picked out for us to read was amazing. Like I loved every single one of them because she had great taste. Uh, and so one of the ones that she picked, um, that I also had, like, there was a reading of part of it on an episode of This American Life a really long time ago. Um, but the story is called We Didn't by Stuart Dybeck. Um, and it is, like, a sort of meditation on, like, like, these two teenagers are, 
like, gonna maybe have sex and they end up not having sex. And then it's about, like, why didn't we have sex? But it's also about, like, all the things that, like, you they didn't do together and sort of, like, the things that are lost um, in the – what am I trying to say? Like, the what-ifs, I guess. Um, and I like it a lot. I've never really had to think nice. about what my favorite short story is. Cool. Uh, maybe later I will come up with something better. <laughs> well, I couldn't ask what's your favorite Stephen King work because we have answered that question. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more than once. <laughs> so we had to go a different route. But good selection there. Those are all very different. Okay, so let's get into this one. The novella at hand, Elevation. Um, as is our custom, I'm going to read the Goodreads summary. Although Scott Carey doesn't look any different, he's been steadily losing weight. There are a couple of other odd things, too. He weighs the same in his clothes and out of them, no matter how heavy they are. Scott doesn't want to be poked and prodded. He mostly just wants someone else to know, and he trusts Dr. Bob Ellis. In the small town of Castle Rock, the setting of many of King's iconic stories, Scott is engaged in a low-grade but escalating battle with the lesbians next door, whose dog regularly drops his business on Scott's lawn. One of the women is friendly, the other cold as ice. Both are trying to launch a new restaurant, but the people of Castle Rock want no part of a gay married couple, and the place is in trouble. When Scott finally understands the prejudices they face, including his own, he tries to help. Unlikely alliances, the annual foot race, and the mystery of Scott's affliction bring out the best in people who have indulged the worst in themselves and others. Just yeah. sit with that for a second. Those I guess. married lesbians was hard. <laughs> the lesbians next door is <laughs> that's the name of my uh, like uh, my first novel to the couple next door. <laughs> yeah. The lesbians next door. Yeah. Can we? Can that be the title of the episode? <laughs> the lesbians next door. <laughs> um. Sure. Uh, okay. Um. So there's. There are two, like, major things happening here, like, two major conflicts, I guess. The first is that Scott's losing all this weight, um, and then it's affecting things he touches as well. Like, that's why he weighs the same in his clothes and out of them. Like, once he touches his clothes, they don't weigh anything either. So there's some, it's not like he's sick or something. It's, like, a mysterious force. Um, And the second is this conflict between um, the lesbians next door (laughs) And Scott starts about dog the poop. married, yeah, married yeah. lesbians, which apparently is the real, he's very insistent the real problem that the yeah. town has. It's not um, that they're so, lesbians; it's that the they have about. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first we have to talk about them first and this conflict because it's also like the deal with that's why the town doesn't like them. And uh, what's up with that? So let's just talk about this this beef, why it exists, and, like, why the town specifically hates them. Um, I guess it's hard for me to, like, to know what it truly is like in a small town like this because I have never been in a place where it's, like, where something like that could be such a huge scandal because the town is so small and everyone is so conservative. Um. But basically, there's 
a lesbian couple and everyone hates them, not because, well, partially because they're lesbians, but mostly because they're married lesbians, which I guess is just like the fact that they are taking, you know, what is meant to be between a man and a woman and making it between two ladies and... And there's, like, there's no plausible deniability. Like, you can't just say, right. maybe they're roommates. Like, they're proudly married. Yeah, they're married. People love to say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I mean, that's the... I've heard a lot of... <laughs> that's, like, a famous... A famously used homophobic excuse. Like, it doesn't bother me that they're gay. It bothers me that they're in your face about it. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Like, no, it bothers you that they're gay. <laughs> right. Like, yes. be realistic. Um, But yeah, it's... No one's in your face about it. It's, like, interesting that, like, our main character that we get is, like, he's not, like, opposed to them being lesbians, but he, like, has a different fight going on with them. And it's, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Any time that there's, like, this weird animosity between, like, a person and, like, people who, like, like the fact that he is, like, a longtime member of this conservative town and then he has a fight with these two women who are lesbians, but it's not because they're lesbians. It's just that their dog was shitting in my yard. It's, like, don't you think that maybe it's a little bit because they're lesbians? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I would be very mad. I'd be I'd be mad if too. Their dog was pooping in my yard and they weren't picking it up. Yeah. Um I think that whole situation was bad. Yeah. Because he was even like you could pick it up and they were just like, "No." They were like, "We don't believe that it was our dog." So then he like takes a picture of the dog's <laughs> shitting and like shows it to them. And they're like, fine, you win. And then he feels like an asshole because it's like, of course you feel like an asshole. You, like, took photographic evidence of someone's dog <laughs> shitting in your yard. Like, you, of course you're being, like, petty as fuck. But also, like, I get that people should pick up after their dogs. But it's just kind of, like, I guess it was a way to show that, like, these women came into this town and at this point they're so used to being, like – excluded mm-hmm. by the town and judged by everyone that they assume that he has like all, all these preconceived notions about them and they assume that him being like your dogs are shitting in my yard they're like probably our dogs aren't actually shitting and he's just trying to fuck with us uh yeah so you can't really blame them for feeling that way either yeah it adds it adds some nuance to the disagreement between Scott and his neighbors, his lesbian neighbors, um, to think about how the town is reacting to them at the same time. Yeah. Which is what you just said, but I'm just saying it differently. No. <laughs> I need mean, to say things in as many ways as possible. Yeah. That's true. I. That's why there's four of us. As someone from a small town, this is even generous yeah. of a read on how people would treat them. I mean, they're in a New England town versus I'm from a very southern town, mm-hmm. so there is a difference there. But I'm just thinking like, uh, there's somebody I grew up with who is gay and is married and just had a child. 
uh, her and her partner just had a child, and they invited a lot of people from home to a baby shower, and people were like, I'm not going to that lesbian baby shower. Like, you know, and I'm just like, yeah. I guess I'm just very out of touch with that because I read baby. this and I was just like, this feels very dated to me. Like, it, yeah, it felt definite, like, middle aged white man, vibe. very middle aged white man, yeah. Vibe. It felt very, I mean, not to get into like feelings about the book or anything like that, but it felt a little out of touch to me, felt a little okay boomer to me as a story. <laughs> yeah. Wee bit. A wee bit. Well, I think that's why, though, that it keeps... They talk so much about the, like, political climate there. Mm -hmm. And Trump specifically is named multiple times, Mm -hmm. which kind of isn't surprising, because if you've... Yeah. Well, we know people read Stephen King's Twitter because of recent events, which we can also get (laughs) into. He tweets a lot about Trump, and he got blocked by Trump, like, a long, long time ago, and it's a big point of pride. Like, before Um, Trump even got elected. All that's on purpose, but... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It doesn't take much, I don't think, to get blocked, but... I know a cat who got um, blocked by Trump. I think Stephen King is very much, like, a person who has his middle-aged man heart in the right place, you know? Yes. (laughs) But it is a middle-aged man heart. (laughs) Middle-aged white man. Yes. Yeah, he he has messed up in this realm recently. So, but I think, anyway, I don't think that, like, the out-of-touchness of that is a result of, like, Stephen King being out of touch, but of like mm-hmm. okay we're gonna blame like the town for this mm-hmm. like you have to buy into that this is how the town is to go along with the rest of it yeah in general yeah although i've never thought of castle rock as that type of town <laughs> in like other stuff I've i read. know no, like i always assumed there was too much supernatural stuff going on to be worried about but, yeah like you definitely don't want to live there like for other reasons. If though. you guys watch season two of Castle Rock, which is way better than season one, I by the to. way. I know, I want to um, watch it. It's I way will. better than season one. And I liked season one, but I thought season two was like really good. Um, you do see a little bit of that side of Castle Rock um, in this season, especially, I feel like. There's a lot of like issue, racism issues going on and Im- issues with immigration. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I truly, I was like Actually, horrified. I, oh, I was like horrified thinking, I you know, I thought New England was very liberal. There are rednecks everywhere, Mary. What? Oh, well. <laughs> well, I was just like, really, Castle Rock? Yeah. Bummer. I also, because it was Castle yeah, Rock, kept expecting like a ghost everywhere. to pop out. Yeah. Ghost popping out doesn't yeah, make you more liberal. There are so. some stories. <laughs> Sorry, go Susan. <laughs> oh, no, my bad. Um, Ghosts everywhere. I'm voting for Hillary. I've thought of, like, a couple of stories where it is a really gossipy yeah. type yeah. town, which could, you know, like, lean that yeah. way. But and Well, anyway. I mean, I think, too, like, that's part of the small town dynamic of, like, everyone talks about everyone and knows everyone's business. And there were, like, passages where people would say, have you heard of that new restaurant? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so brilliant. This is so brilliant. Also, I need to say, <laughs> on top of everything else, these two white women lesbians have opened a Mexican restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> a vegetarian Mexican a vegetarian Mexican restaurant. restaurant in called Holy for Holy. Yeah, Holy for Holy in a which is funny. Yeah, I mean, I assume that they're both white yeah, women because they're both like described as being blonde. So I'm like, they're probably white women. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I could be wrong. Um, holy for holy sounds dope well, though. Like I would eat there. Yeah, it's there just probably like aren't any other Mexican restaurants in that town. Yeah. It's just funny because it's just like another There's probably no authentic Mexican restaurant. It's there. just another layer of like yeah. it's like like okay, so we have these lesbians and they're being discriminated against, but then it's like they are also appropriating a culture in the restaurant that they have decided to open because they're white ladies and there's just like levels upon levels of like people not you know and i don't i don't think that that like came across in the story at all like there was no like mention of the fact that like isn't it kind of weird that these two white ladies have a mexican restaurant yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think Stephen King was thinking about that. There, you know, here in the South, Mexicans own Mexican restaurants. Yeah. But, you know, in the North, <laughs> they don't have as many Mexican restaurants. And so maybe these, yeah, these ladies lived in Texas for a little while and thought, we're basically qualified to run a Mexican maybe. restaurant <laughs> in Maine. So, yeah. I don't know. At least it was named something like a white sounding Mexican restaurant. Yeah. And not like Los Amigos. Holy for holy. Los Amigos. <laughs> Pacos. Um, they didn't try to like pull off a Spanish name. Yeah, it's true. But like I just messed up. Like a white lady. <laughs> white lady <laughs> trying to speak lady. Spanish. Anyway, I, I wonder if like if it wasn't for um, for Scott's strange condition if he would have ever like bothered trying to make amends with them in the first place yeah i like or if it was just once he was like having this other weird thing happen that he saw them as other outsiders who needed friendship yeah yeah i and i and like it seems he like wants to be their friends real bad yeah And it seems especially, like, towards the end of the novel, he's trying to, like, make things right. Yeah. You know, like, settle their issues because he thinks he's going to die. Well, now I think we can talk about what's happening to to Scott. Yes. I'm... Or try to. (laughs) Um... I'm so excited to talk about this because I don't know that I have anything, like, definitive to say, but I think Scott's condition is very interesting. So he's losing weight, like the book description says, he's losing weight at a rapid pace, like, at the end of the book, like, three pounds a day Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And he weighs the same... No matter what he's eaten, no matter what clothes he has on, he could be holding a literal dumbbell or something, Mm -hmm. and he would weigh the same. And anyone who touches him also begins to weigh the same. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's 
And there's no explanation for and it. He looks, he looks the same. He doesn't yes, look like. And he looks the like. same. I mean, that's kind of the most interesting yeah, part and to me. People tell him the whole time how fat he looks. <laughs> yes, they're like, you're gonna. There's you know a pivotal scene where he's gonna participate in this turkey trot, this race. And everyone's like, you're going to have a heart attack out there. It's like, you're going to have a heart attack. Would people actually say that to someone who is going to go run a race? Like, Jesus. (laughs) I don't know. It was bad. I've run plenty of races. No one's ever been like, you need to be in the back. Right. Okay? Like, you're obviously slow. (laughs) Like, no. No one really talks to each other. It's just like, get it done. I guess it's in a small town. You're certainly going to have a heart attack. Like, Pointing at his chest and, like, blessing themselves. That's kind of... That was, like, a movie moment. Yeah. Yes. In case this ever becomes a movie, which it won't. But it is a small town, so, you know, maybe, like, they know that he's not out there running every day. And we're like, what "What is this dude doing here? What's particularly interesting to me about this is, like, typically in narratives where people are trying to lose weight or losing weight... There is a huge emphasis on how they look. Um, And typically, um, it's all about the looks, right? So, like, I'm thinking of, I mean, a lot of YA novels come to mind because this is what I'm writing my dissertation on. But, like, I'm thinking about, like, uh, Winter Girls by Laurie Halls Anderson. Like, it's about girls with anorexia. It's all about how they look, right? They talk about it constantly. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for me, thinking about someone who's losing weight and feeling good, like, Scott feels physically great, right? He feels stronger because apparently his muscles are still for his fat body. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm lo- I love how anytime well, they bring up the science, it's like, it's too confusing to get into. Let's not even bother. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, like, he feels good. <laughs> He's eating a lot. He's eating whatever he wants. He is running in this race and almost winning. He's doing all these things, having a great time doing it. He looks the same, though. So, like, all the social benefits that he would gain from losing weight of people complimenting him or treating him differently, he doesn't get any of those. Yeah. And so I just I just thought it was really interesting to see an example of someone getting the benefits feeling wise, like body wise of losing weight, but not getting the social benefits that people typically want more than anything. Right. The else. reason they probably tried to do it in the first place oftentimes. Yes. Yes. So I I mean this was just like fascinating and i don't know that i have like an answer of like well why yeah you know i mean i think it was essential like on a narrative level that no one really know what was going on with scott yeah so he could sort of you know make his peace with things and work on things himself and not be like publicly pitied yeah but it's still like in in the tradition of narratives about fat bodies. It is anomalous, I think, and an interesting one. Yeah. Has anybody read Thinner? No. No. Yes, I was just about to ask that same question. <laughs> uh, I haven't read it. I saw the movie like a really long time ago, but I remember um, Justin shouting out the movie. Oh God. 
Yes. He was like, great film. (laughs) It's just like a guy in a terrible fat suit, and he slowly Uh wears smaller fat suits as he goes. (laughs) Until he becomes a a, a, himself. (laughs) The novel is uh, racist. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Um, It's got Emily's favorite, um, least favorite term in it that now is on a bunch of like yoga teacher shirts gypsy oh gypsy oh no the reason the reason the main character is dropping weight oh Oh, gypsy curse no one knows why but the reason is because of a gypsy curse nice i was gonna guess an indian curse which is also very racist so i mean yeah so anyway Stephen Wise and Indian Barry Brown as well. That's so, true. He does no. Pet Cemetery, it, huh? etc. Stephen King loves an Indian burial ground. You know. Or, or. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So exotic curses from yes. other races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when this started out, I was like, so this is thinner, but. Yeah, I was, like, a little concerned when I started reading it that it was going to be, like, body horror, which always freaks me out, like, more than most things. And then it wasn't. I was so relieved. I was like, thank God. (laughs) Can we talk to – I just want to say, like, while we're on the topic of horror, um, this one, like, in 2018 for the Goodreads, like, best horror novel of the year. This did? I don't think it's a horror novel. This is not a horror novel. No. Horror? Right. There's literally yes. no horror. Horror? Horror? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. so, like, no, but I knew that going in, so, like, I started reading this thinking, like, it was going to be a horror novel, so, like, pretty like, disappointed now. here. I was like, when's it gonna happen? It didn't, like, nothing scary happened. At all. No, no. and in fact, it's, like, it's really different, even from his like supernatural his other supernatural kind of non-horror things yeah like yeah it's almost like uplifting that mm-hmm. that sounded dumb <laughs> uplifting end, so <laughs> nice. but like <laughs> literally. literally and figuratively uplifting <laughs> um but no it's oh, no. like it's it seems like it's supposed to be hopeful yeah mm-hmm. it feels and very hopeful like, let us all come together in a way that, yes. like, Stephen King doesn't ever seem to be interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was different. And I think so much of it, like, going back to the weight thing is about, like, how just to be, like, super literal and talk about, like, you know, how shedding the weight of things like prejudice and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff can literally make you feel lighter, Um and can elevate you, Ooh, you <laughs> into being a better person. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was surprised that because I was just expecting it to like end badly. Um, and it doesn't end badly, even though like it and it's like sad what happens. But. I guess it's also part of it is about like accepting death, which is interesting coming yeah. from like an author who's been writing for such a long time about death, who is like getting older mm-hmm. and probably like 
I would think that if you're a writer and you're, like, up there in years, you're probably starting to think a little bit more about, like, your own uh, eventual death, right? Yeah. And this is more like a accepting and positive uh, take on dying, I guess. Yeah. It's, and I mean, part of what kept me interested as I read was the mystery of, okay, well, what's going to happen to him when he reaches zero? Yeah. Yeah. Because there didn't seem to, like, he didn't know why he was losing weight this way. Yeah. I figured he would float up into the sky. Like, that was my assumption. I, you know, I (laughs) should have expected that. Just because... Because of the title of the book. Oh, yeah. And just because of, like, the way that, like, when he lifted, when he would touch someone who was lighter than him, uh they would float up off the ground. I was like, okay, well then when he hit zero, he's going to float up off yeah. the ground. Um, and also it just, because it seemed like what was happening was not that he was losing weight. It was that gravity was losing its uh, effect on him specifically, which I guess like weight is gravity, but he still has like the matter. So it's confusing science. Um <laughs> Can I can I ask a morbid logistics question? Please. Yeah. So at the end of the novel, he has lost all of his gravity has lost its hold on him. He's floating away. Yeah. Uh, he straps himself into a wheelchair, like has all these precautions so he doesn't just like float to the ceiling of his house and not be able to come down. Right. Um, but he decides he's going to float into the sky with a firework, and then he's going to light the firework. Mm-hmm. He definitely explodes, right? Yes. <laughs> the gentle the gentleness with which you ask but that. I just <laughs> I just feel like somewhere in Castle Rock someone is getting blood rained on them. <laughs> oh man. Didn't even think about that. I mean that. that's that's morbid, but like I, that's all so I can think. Kind of surprised. I th- I think I he's so story. high up in the sky at that point that maybe it, like, I don't know. No, nope. I don't know how, so, how the else, sky works. Someone's getting blood rained on them, and they're like, must be a ghost. It's Castle the, Rock. Maybe he's left the atmosphere, and when he burns up, it's too it's too cold up there or something. Because, well, like, at what point does he launch the firework? Like, how high up does he have to be? But also, if his body doesn't weigh anything, even if he explodes, it can't oh, fall. Gosh. Away. So he, there's just like blood, like floating in space. I just like yeah, the idea. But eventually, it'll burn up. Yeah, yeah. I, I just like the idea that he did this like very physical thing, and someone else in Castle Rock is attributing it to a spooky thing. <laughs> yeah. I just like to think that. But I mean, it's still supernatural. <laughs> it's just not supernatural it is. in the way that person like might think it magical is. realism. Yeah. I like hope season realism. three of Castle Rock starts with feet just hitting. <laughs> hitting someone in the <laughs> face. and body. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that actually sounds Once like Once he's in pieces, does he 
his the pieces of his body suddenly weigh things again? Ooh. Does he just have to be a whole? <laughs> yeah. These are the questions. Well, if, I was, if he had I submitted thinking... to like testing, that they definitely would have like amputated something and checked. Yeah. I yeah. Think. He, okay, so I get not wanting to like go through all of that because who wants to sit like in a hospital and go through a bunch of tests? But also like he doesn't ever really seem that interested in what's happening to him or why. He's just like yeah. it's going to become zero, and I know that already. Yeah. Like he talks it seems about like zero he... day before he ever like he... we hear anybody else get to that conclusion. Yeah. It seems like he just knows like. That there is no, um, rat, like, answer for why this is... He's like, this is so crazy that, like, me going to try to figure it out at the doctor is just going to be wasting everyone's time. Because, uh, like, there, this isn't a thing that happens to people. Yeah. Which is always something that I wonder about, like, any time I'm, you know, watching a horror movie or reading something that has supernatural elements or fantasy when someone is like, this is the first time that this crazy thing is occurring. I'm like, some people accept it so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just, <laughs> like, this is my life now. I'd be like, this can't be actually happening. Like, I would spend so much time in denial of a crazy thing happening. Oh, see, you know? I, I always think that they don't, like, accept it as reality fast enough. So, like, <laughs> I mean, okay, it's so just for example. So, like, last night... I was sleeping. It was like two, not two fifty, twelve fifty in the morning or whatever. I was sleeping, and the cat in the other room starts meowing and like running around. This is Cersei, by the way. This, yeah, I was like, this is the sea. She was meowing, <laughs> running around, and I woke up and I was like, well, it's a ghost. Like, <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm and I, was, I just sleep. don't understand like why most people. In horror movies, like, if that were happening, they'd be like, what is it? Like, I wonder what's going on. Why is the cat acting so crazy? Like, it's a ghost. Like, I don't understand. So, I have the opposite reaction to horror movies. <laughs> like, for real. If that That's was me, I'd have been like, we obviously have a mouse in our house. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's and a ghost. happening. Could be a ghost of a mouse. That's true. There's something to the way that he goes the way that he is dying there's something in there about like just acceptance and like choosing how you're going to get to die especially like for a sick person like it's almost like refusing treatment um yeah and he says like when he's feeling kind of like free at the end and floating away like everyone should get to feel this when they die and obviously that's not how things go and you don't get to choose and just float away happily and then explode yourself um but yeah that's what i was thinking of then like there's something about kind of autonomy over how your life ends mm-hmm. yeah so overall what what is the story saying <laughs> or doing what do we think is happening? I think Scott ultimately learns it is better to try to understand other people and be a decent person 
than to hold on to prejudices and regrets. And I mean, I, I do think the story is just like about trying to listen and understand other people and how that is ultimately freeing, I guess, especially for older white men. Mm-hmm. I do. And like, I'm not saying that to make fun of it. I, tr- I genuinely do think this is like Stephen King saying, hey, other middle-aged white men. Right. We could do better. Like, it did feel that way. Yeah. Again, he. I think he has his heart in the right place. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's about exactly what Mary said. <laughs> I was going to try to find a new way, way to phrase it, but I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. It's hard it because it is. But different. It is very short and it's very, yeah. I, it's very straightforward, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't think it's there's. It's one of those stories that it's like, it's on this trajectory, you know where it's going, it goes there. Yeah. And... Yeah. It's kind of like a fable almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And there's not a lot of room for like interpretation, <laughs> I don't think. I think it was, I mean. Which is okay. Which is not a this bad thing. A, like, yeah. by a long shot, it's not the best thing of Stephen King's that I've read. It's also, by a long shot, not the worst thing. Um, but I did think it was, <laughs> yeah. like, a nice change. Like, it was, like, a good little break. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't what I expected it to I be. I liked it. So, like, I enjoyed I, it. I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is, it is kind of a, a fable. Um, but I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing. And he's, he, no. um, no. reads the audiobook himself, which I immediately was like, oh no. Because usually when the author reads their own shit, it's like super bad. But I thought he was pretty good. <laughs> hey. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, I, uh, mm, it was okay. His reading or the listening book? Listening to him. Oh, okay. No, listening <laughs> to him reading it. Yeah, because I listened to the audiobook too. But I like, I don't know. I kind of wish somebody else had read it. Um, I think this quote from that I have in the front of my book from the New York Times book review, there's a little like praise for page. Uh, and it says, this is Gilbert Cruz. And he says, there's a sweetness that feels like something new for King. It's heavy out there right now. Here's something that's not. Huh. Which yeah, I think is like that makes sense. Yeah, a nice way to sum it up that like this is like a short, uplifting little book mm-hmm. that is like definitely targeting something that is going on like in our country, obviously, and not in the most new or like um, groundbreaking way, <laughs> but uh, is like kind of a plea for, you know, decency. Ratings. <laughs> <laughs> I will go ahead and lead. Unfortunately, I did give this book a two. 
Damn, I, after all that. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> it's not that I didn't enjoy it at all. Like, there, I definitely, like, on a writing level, I think Stephen King's novellas and short stories are much better than his longer novels. I think he writes, like, a tight story. You know, like, I think the writing was there. I just kept feeling as I was reading, like, it wasn't for me. Like, I wasn't the target demographic of it. And I struggled with whether to give it a three or a two. Because, like, a three seems okay, but a two seems really harsh. (laughs) But I I gave it the two. I also gave it a two. This is Emily. I also gave it a two, and I'll explain why. Um, I know, like, star ratings mean different things to different people. But for me, like, if something's a three, that means, like, uh, wasn't my favorite, but I still liked it and would recommend it. Um, two would be, two is, like, I probably wouldn't recommend other people read it. This is a book that, like, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't recommend it to other people. Like, it was fine, but I wouldn't say, like, oh, you should read this book. You know, like, there's so many other Stephen yeah. King books that I would recommend. Although, I one. am trying to find a way um, I can write about this book. It's doing okay. some stuff. <laughs> yeah. That I think um, I can talk about. It is doing well, some stuff. I'm gonna give it a three. Because I liked it and thought it was fine. <laughs> Which is usually... Um, <laughs> What I I don't I don't usually think about whether or not I would recommend something, because um, it's that's so individual, you know. Well, like, yeah, it's my job to recommend things. Oh, so totally. I and I, if I were you, I would be thinking about it a lot. Think, would I want my TBR specialist to see this and say I'm going to give her more like this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, see, I don't have to worry about these yeah. things. So you're free, and I also gave it a I'm three. Free. So maybe that's. There's something to that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. actually, free, you're free to three. <laughs> I yeah. enjoyed it. And I thought, I think that I actually, I do think about if I would recommend it, not like as my job, but I, I do think like when people ask me what I've been reading lately and I tell them, oh, you sh- here's one that I read. You should read this. I think for people who just yeah. want like a quick read, like I would say, this is a quick little mm-hmm. read. Yeah. It's good. It's fine. It and is, for people who aren't looking for stuff that's too heavy, again, like... Yeah, or like, ooh, I'm, I want to read Stephen King, but I don't like horror. I'd be like, oh, I got you. <laughs> I would say read The yeah. Body. Yeah. I would be like, you like Stephen King, but you don't like horror? Let me introduce you yeah. to the Dark ha- Dark Tower series. Yeah, I but like Dark that's Tower a either. lot longer than this. <laughs> that's a great I know. example. I'm always that like, let me take you long. to the sci-fi I corner. Tried to read yeah. the first book in that series. Yes. I just did not. It was very, like, western-y. And I was like, nah. It is. It's, yeah. like, a sci- it's like a dystopian Sorry. sci-fi western. That was it's what everything took I me love. out of that yeah. as well. Oh, it's something about westerns. I'm just <laughs> If you don't like I westerns, you probably it. won't like it. Um, but yeah, I don't I- like westerns either. Cool. You won't. Um, but you might like Elevation. Yeah. You might. That's how I would recommend Perhaps. it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would say you it. don't have to read a Stephen nice. King book. Uh, so you, know, you could read something else. 
Yeah. This is in a world where you can only I recommend guess maybe Emily. I would recommend The Body then. If they're looking for Stephen yes. King that's short and not horror, I would say read The Body. That's my final answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I... Okay, so Stephen King tweeted that as a writer, he is only eligible to nominate in three categories for the Oscars. And he followed it up by saying, uh, like quality and diversity are two separate issues. Kelly, are you looking it up? Yeah, I'll just read his tweets. Good. It's probably easier. Uh, let's see. Okay. He says, as a writer, I am allowed to, to nominate in just three categories. Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Screenplay. For me, the diversity issue, as it applies to individual actors and directors anyway, did not come up. That said, I would never consider diversity in matters of art, only quality. It seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so he tweets this. Twitter explodes, yes. of course, uh, and is annoyed at him. And then about three hours later, uh, <laughs> he then tweets, The most important thing we can do as artists and creative people is make sure everyone has the same fair shot, regardless of sex, color, or orientation. Right now, such people are badly underrepresented and not only in the arts. You can't win awards if you're shut out of the game. Uh, which is like the opposite of what he just said. Um, I think... I think what he was trying to say uh, originally, which is, like, true. Like, it would be great if we were all on equal footing and never had to think about anything other than quality. But that's not the world that we live in. Um, And I think that that's something that has to often be explained to people who don't fall into the categories of types of people who are underrepresented. Uh, Like, middle-aged white men. Who are like, well, who cares if you're black or white? It's all about if it's good or not. And it's like... Only mm-hmm. white dudes say that. <laughs> Only white dudes say yeah. that. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad that uh, he quickly, like, came I'm back out good. and was like, also... Because I'm sure someone was like, um, hey, Stephen, can I talk to you real quick? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was his wife. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think he, again, like, I think he does have his heart in the right place. Mm -hmm. So I think that he's a person who is, like, willing to step back and be like, here is an amendment to my original statement. Um, and he didn't delete what he originally said. Um, because I feel, and I, and I appreciate it when someone doesn't delete that to kind of show, like, here's what I said before and I now learned something Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to pretend that I was never ignorant. You know, it's one thing if you like post something. Other writers would learn from that. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm not going to name names. (laughs) Other writers who should not be named must not be named. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She who must not Mm -hmm. be named. (laughs) So, yeah, but it does seem important to just address, like we are aware of that and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I do think this is this is a good example, though, of 
not knowing something, speaking before you fully understood, and then saying, hey, I hecked up. And... Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, like, nobody's perfect. Nobody is, like, yeah. immune to saying stuff like that. And these writers sure and other celebrities are just unfortunately in the position of lots of people are watching them at all times. So, like, right. if they say something that could even possibly be misconstrued, like, it's under public scrutiny. And I think, you know, Stephen King did make a good example of, like, maybe I shouldn't have said it like this. Here's mm-hmm. more clarification. I'm sorry. Right. And moved on, you know? So, I mean, I yeah. think he did the best he could with it. It was kind of one of those things, like, I looked at it and went, ooh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, he tweeted an amendment, and I was like, okay, like, I, I get where you're coming from. He's also of a very different generation, which is yeah. not an excuse, and I think honestly makes it more commendable that he's not going, like, full Clint Eastwood or something. Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a crazy fucker full Clint um, Eastwood yeah. <laughs> on a scale of one to Clint Eastwood like, while, the, while the amendment to it is like somewhat uh, opposite of what he was saying in the beginning I do like see the connection between mm-hmm. what he said second and what I think he might have been trying to say at first I'm not saying like yeah. he did it he said it Which- right or anything but I think like I don't know. No. It makes sense. Like, point A to point B made sense for me. And I think I, I also agree yeah. that it's good he didn't just delete it and pretend that all he said was the second thing. <laughs> but um, all right. Yeah, overall, I think uh, he'll be okay from this. <laughs> and I'm okay with it. There are people saying so much worse things on the internet uh, than this. Yeah. And yeah, this is bad, but it's like... I'm so desensitized to people being fucking idiots at this point that I'm like, whatever, I forgive you. <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever, I forgive you. Yeah. Well, I mean, who among us hasn't said some dumb bullshit and then been like, oh, I learned some shit later. Yeah, that's the thing. I also have a, I also have a listener feedback that just got texted oh. to me. So. Okay. Well, I mean, it literally just just texted me because I was like, where's your feedback? I was promised because um, we'll do. OK, I'm going to do the interview and then we'll do listener feedback. Yes. That's how we're going to do it. Hi. Yes. Surprise. We have an interview. <gasps> yes. Oh, boy. Are we excited? I'm so excited. Okay. Yes. So this week um, I got to interview Kelly Watt, the author of Mad Dog. Um, so I actually... At the time of this recording, I I have not interviewed her yet. I'm interviewing her later this week. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it was great and delightful. And you're going to love this interview. Yes. Um, Yeah. So little, I'm just going to read the back of this book so you can hear a little bit about what it's about. And then uh, listen to this interview. It'll be awesome. Um, So this is Mad Dog. It's the summer of 1964, and the Supremes are the reigning queens of radio. Cheryl Ann McRae dreams of running away from her home on an apple orchard in southwestern Ontario to find her missing mother. But the teenager's plans are put on hold when her uncle and guardian, Fergus, that's just (laughs) a name that you're asking for trouble, um, (laughs) the local pharmacist and amateur photographer, brings home a handsome young, young hitchhiker. 
Mm-hmm. Yummy. When Cheryl Ann meets the guitar toting Peter Lucas Angelo, she falls in love. Girl, never fall in love with a man with a guitar. Never fall in love with no. a hitchhiker. Absolutely not. Mm-mm. I thought you were so, about to just say never fall in love with a man. Also that. That's <laughs> too. But life in Eden Valley is not as idyllic as it seems. As the summer progresses, Peter is pulled deeper into Fergus's dangerous underworld. What did I tell y'all? Fergus is bad news. <laughs> a world of sex, drugs, and porn. In this thrilling tale, Watt captures the ethereal and complex Cheryl Ann with vivid, often frightening detail, charts the destruction of a family. Mad Dog marks the arrival of a gifted storyteller. Woo! Sounds so good. that interview. Ta-da. Awesome. Ding. So I am talking to Kelly Watt, the author of Mad Dog. Um, so this book was originally released in 2001. Is that right? Correct. Correct. September, my launch date was, first of all, I just want to say thank, thank you, Emily, for your interest in Mad Dog. Um, and the book was originally published August of 2001, and the launch date was September 13th. I must have been feeling very optimistic. Uh, so that was, um, of course, uh, two days after 9-11. So, you know, uh, it was a very strange time, as you can imagine. So many awful, horrific things happened. So in a strange kind of way, the book didn't, um, had a very slow, very quiet kind of opening. And um, uh, so there were several reasons why I wanted to re-release it. And uh, yeah, so I know in the... Uh, at the beginning of the book, you talk about um, one of the reasons you wanted to re-release it was because of um, the Me Too movement. Um, and that was something that you thought this book would resonate with women who are a part of that movement or sort of like um, contemporary feminism. Would you say that's right? Exactly. That's that's exactly correct. One of the things that happened with the book, I mean, um, besides the sort of really strange traumatic timing for so many people in North America, I really noticed that people were still very uncomfortable with the subject matter. They were still very uncomfortable talking about sexual assault, talking about childhood sexual abuse, talking about child luring or child pornography. In fact, I had people say to me, so we're talking 2001, not that long ago, but I had people say to me that child pornography was just a rumor. The internet hadn't really arrived yet, so people were still really um, naive about the extent of all this and really didn't begin to believe it until the pictures were actually staring in them in the face. And years later, what ended up happening is I, um, I got involved in activism and all kinds of other things. And while in Mexico, I met a group of women who were involved with uh, a small publisher in the U.S. called Hamilton Stone Editions, and they really loved the book and said, you know what, you should bring it out now because people are much more savvy and understanding about these issues now. And I kind of hesitated and hummed it hard. And then when 2017 happened and the Me Too movement really took off, I thought, uh, finally, women are being um, listened to when they come forward and society is finally accepting that sexual harassment and assault takes place in, 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 in unprecedented numbers. 
and the public was finally supporting the women who came forward instead of shaming them. So I thought, yeah, maybe now people will finally understand that these same things happen to young girls and children too. So I want to talk a little bit about the book and what happens in the book. Sure. Um, First of all, this book takes place in the 60s, um, 1964. Um, We have a main character who is a teenager, Cheryl Ann McRae. Um, And I noticed as I was reading it that especially for Cheryl, um, pop culture references were pretty significant. She talks about pop culture a lot. She has this relationship uh, with Peter and she compares him to James Dean. Um, There's just all sorts of 60s pop culture references throughout the novel. And I personally, just to get on my like little soapbox for a minute, I love pop culture references in novels. Like I think it's great. Um, okay. but, Good. <laughs> so it's always something I that I like, now. want to talk about when I read a book that has a lot of pop culture in it. I'm like, you know, like I know why I like to do it when I'm writing, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you think the pop culture adds to the novel and what is the setting of the 60s? Um, how does that connect to the themes of the novel? Right. Well, I picked that year, um, not so much for personal reasons, but because uh, it was a pivotal year sort of between where the 50s really became the 60s. When we talk about the 1960s, we're usually referring to what we think of as a kind of wild, sort of groovy, you know, if you want to use historical language from time from 1965 onwards. But before that, the stayed sort of post-war 1950s were really still the status quo. And because of the themes in the novel, I wanted that conservatism, conservatism and the old, boy, old boys club atmosphere that was right in small towns at that time as a background to Cheryl's discoveries. And I also wanted her to be going through this kind of awakening, which is what happens to her over the course of the novel, at a moment of change. And um, I think we're living in a moment of change now. And so depicting that moment of change then, I think, is is um, an interesting reference. Um, at that time, you know, women and children, of course, had very few rights. I can say in my own case, like my mother was divorced in those years and had to lie to get a job, as you can imagine, because people wouldn't hire divorcees if the woman, um, even if the woman is, was abandoned penniless, as my mother was, she just didn't tell her employers that she'd been married or that she had a child because they wouldn't give you a job. And um, my father, of course, didn't pay child support or anything like that. So it was a very, still a very, very difficult time for women and children and um, so anyway I wanted that moment of change and that's partly why I picked the year and in terms of um, popular culture and those kinds of references um, you know who among us isn't transported back to a moment in time when we hear um, a bar of music I mean it's just you know it's, they're, those references are so incredibly powerful and evocative and I know people argue for and against them you know it can date the book it can do this or that but this was already going to be historical anyway I wanted it to take place in this former time and um, so that's why I really I really like them and of course for me doing research for the book I spent a lot of time you know, listening to the Supreme, you know, I happen to love Motown. I'm a real fan of Motown. So um, the opening of the book, Cheryl Ann is listening to um, Dr. B on her transistor radio. 
And uh, I think they referred to the reigning queens of, of Motown, and that was, of course, the Supremes. And uh, there's also reference, yeah, Jimmy Dean is, is another reference that um, Cheryl Ann makes when she meets the hitchhiker who comes. Um, the story is very much built around the premise of, you know, this summer the stranger came to town, and that stranger is the wannabe musician, Peter Lucasangelo, and she develops a crush on him. And the first thing she notices is that he looks like Jimmy Dean. I think it was interesting what you said about the setting making, I mean, because Cheryl is an outsider in a lot of what's happening in the novel. Um, mm-hmm. And the time period makes her even more of an outsider because she's not only an outsider as she, you know, she's in this weird in-between period where she's, she's still a child, but she thinks in adult ways and wants to do adult things. Right. So mm-hmm. she's an mm-hmm. outsider as a child and she's an outsider as, I don't want to say a woman because she's not like fully a woman yet, but as a girl, she's an outsider. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So the the book, and that's also a really interesting time to write about, which is one of the reasons I think why YA novels are so incredibly popular, not only amongst young people, but also uh, with adults, because it's a very pivotal time as well, you know, so not only is the setting or the era, the, the year, 1964, a pivotal time, but Cheryl's age is a pivotal time. So she's really she's really a child. She's 14, but she's starting to have the feelings of a woman. She's, start, she's developed a crush. She wants to run away. She's, um, you know, pulling, uh, clipping out pictures of, in magazines of different women. She's trying to figure out, you know, she, her mother's abandoned her on this apple orchard. Right. Um, and left her with these strange, distant relatives who turn out to be not the good Samaritans they pretend to be. And so she's looking for some kind of vision of, you know, motherhood. Who is this mother? She wants to reconnect with her mother. And what is what is a woman? How is she going to grow into becoming a woman? And, of course, before she can do that, she has to really find out the truth about her life and about herself. Yeah, so you, you kind of answered the next question I was going to ask about her mother already. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, okay, no, no, that's great. I, I love that. I'm like, I'll just sit back and let you talk. You're doing all the work for me. I'll just. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think you know. Also, you, you're right. Like, it is very significant that you know one of the first things we find out about her is that her her mother is not or. I don't want to say not. She thinks her mother is still in the picture, could potentially be in the picture eventually. Um, but her mother Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. away and it's almost like, it's almost like she is idealizing her mother or this idea of like what her life could be if she had this connection to this mother figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's where the pop culture references work really well too. You know, she's watching, what is it? Ed Sullivan on TV Mm -hmm. (laughs) while she's, while she's going through, you know, women's magazines cutting out pictures of stewardesses and these are all idealized pictures of women you know they're not real women they're they're cutouts and um you know she papers she has this little uh secret place she goes to a little shed and she covers the walls with them with these little pictures and her whole purpose in life is to reconnect with her mother run away and find this lost long lost mother and um but of course she's diverted from that plan when her uncle fergus who's um the local pharmacist and an amateur photographer brings home this hitchhiker, um, Peter, who is uh, the Jimmy Dean lookalike and the wannabe musician. And she sort of, you know, develops a crush on him and thinks, ah, well, I'll stick around for the summer, you know, and 
see how this played out. <laughs> the yeah, young teenage girls would, you know. And, you know, that crush is kind of like her key into womanhood a little bit, right? Because if she's flirting with this guy, if she's like skinny dipping with him and the lake and all this stuff, like it's her way to like act like a woman or feel like she's being seen. Exactly. Like um, some of the irony in the book is that we know that really she's still just a little girl and a very uh, disturbed little girl in many ways and uh, really really doesn't have a great grasp of what's going on around her or or the world itself, but she's struggling to to grow up in the midst of a really murky, weird kind of situation. So I did want to talk to you a little bit about the work you've done outside of this book and how that maybe contextualizes things a little bit. So I know that... Um, sure. In the 90s, you worked as an activist um, and gave talks about human trafficking and child sexual abuse. So I have to I have to feel like what you learned from those experiences and that work you did informed the writing of this novel in some sort of way. Well, it, um, the chronology is a little bit different than okay. uh, what you might have thought. So I wrote the book. Um, and I moved away to the countryside and wrote the book over a series of about eight years. It was really took a very long time to write the book. It was a much longer book originally. And then we kind of shrunk it down. I, I was really fortunate, actually. I, I um, got a book deal in those days on 80 pages of a manuscript with uh, Doubleday Canada. So I was very, very fortunate. But it really was a project in development. And um, so I spent a long time working on it. And then the book came out. Um, the book was delayed. It came out in the fall, as I said, and then sort of went to sleep because of all various events that were happening around the world. And I got involved in activism then. It was then that oh, I felt I that. Yeah, so it was actually, in fact, because of the book that I got involved in activism, what happened is um, I just began... Um, I guess the internet had started up at that point. I was uh, going online looking for um, other women who were doing interesting things in the world on behalf of women. And I came across two activists in Truro, Nova Scotia, and um, they were Linda McDonald and Jean Sarson. And they started something which is now called um, Persons Against Non-State Torture and basically, they were uh, retired. They weren't retired then. They were nurses who were doing counseling on the side for women. And they started to get women. They had a woman show up in their practice who had was sharing with them really egregious forms of harm. And they began to realize that there's a whole level of harm that goes on that really goes into the territory of torture. And that people were not only in denial that sexual assault happens and that child sexual abuse happens and the degree and numbers of people to whom it happens, but also that um, traffickers, these um, sex rings, these sorts of uh, criminal gang-like groups use torture as a kind of silencing, controlling mechanism. And it's much more prevalent than people think. And, um, and it explains why uh, the victims find it so difficult to leave so difficult to remember and so difficult to free themselves. And um, so I wrote them and said, you know, I think it's so great what you're doing. What can I do to help? Hmm. And um, basically that was the beginning of a, 
uh, a long friendship and um, we spent many years going around to different uh, conferences and things and just talking about these issues at a time when it wasn't very popular to do it, I can tell you. And it was difficult. So, um, but uh, it was also very empowering for me to connect with them. And um, when you asked me, you know, what effect did it have? It was, um, we had a big case up here in Canada. You, you may not, might not have heard about it, but it was a radio um, uh, personality who was accused of uh, assaulting women who worked for him. And one of the things the judge, the case, uh, several of the cases against him were not successful. And it was really, um, well, it made me very angry and a lot of other women I know. And one of the things the judge said was, well, you know, we can't trust these testimony because these women talk to one another. And I was just incensed because I thought, does he not know that that's often the only thing women have? The only thing they have is their girlfriends. They share it with their private friends. And in fact, I've been working on a series of trafficking articles this week for different parenting magazines. And um, there are stats now proving that the majority of sexual abuse survivors anyway, and I'm sure this is probably true for sexual assault survivors, tell a friend before they ever tell anyone else or ever tell an adult in their lives. And so, yeah, I mean, this is just the history. And so... So being able to tell my story, share my personal experience with these women and uh, travel with them. And we went to the UN, you know, we had really some really great experiences. It was empowering. And um, the best experience I had was in 2006, we actually went to the United Nations in New York and we presented at a couple of panels. Um, And that year, the theme was violence against the girl child. And I can, uh, I mean, it's a highlight of my life. I have to tell you, you know, to be in this building, to be in New York City, which is so fabulous, and to be at the UN. And there were, what, 6,000 people there, mostly women from all over the world, and some men too. And they were all altruistic people there to basically improve the lives of women around the world and the countries they came from. And it was yeah, I mean, you know, it's just amazing. It really restores your faith in humanity, you know, to see that, right? To see how many people there are out there in the world. As, as much as we see a lot of press on these, you know, famous predators, and there's been a lot of that this past year, there's also so many people out there in the world really trying to make a difference. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just so ho- hopeful, so moving. It is, and I was. that makes me want to ask, you know, if people are listening to this and they're inspired by the work you've done and they think, oh, you know, I want to, I want to be more active and I want to do something to help. What would your suggestion be to them? That's such a great question and such an important question, because I think sometimes we can feel really powerless when we hear about these abuses, you know, Epstein and Weinstein, and see the number of victims and, you know, it can be so overwhelming and very depressing. And I think taking any kind of action um, is empowering, makes you feel, makes you feel like this, you're doing something to change uh, things for the better. Um, I've started a, a blog called Women's Work on my website, uh, www.kellywatt.ca. And so I try to write little articles about just all the women I come across who are doing really interesting altruistic things. 
And um, so people could check in there. And I would just say, you know, it's often little actions that people can take. Even sharing your own personal story with a friend is, is an action. It's, it, right. it's proactive, you know, so reaching out to someone else. Um, uh, signing up for feminist newsletters, um, you know, reading other books. Like uh, this year I read um, She Said, which is also about, about the Weinstein case and the two journalists at, uh, I believe it was the New Yorker, wasn't it? That, uh, New York Times, rather. Um, what a fantastic book. So I, you know, I photographed it. I put it on my Instagram account. I, I um, wrote a little blog about it. You know, little things like this all make a difference. The fact that Women are coming forward and talking, and one of the difficulties with the movement, and I saw this in the 90s, is that there's a kind of pendulum effect, you know, where people um, come out and speak and um, and try to change the politics of the day, and then there's a backlash. And so you want to make sure that, um, you know, you walk through the door before it slams. <laughs> I think it's important to share and... Um, yeah, and support those people who are coming forward. And if you need to come forward yourself, to you get support. I don't think people often realize how much of an effect that can have on other people. Um, just being aware of other people's stories and telling your own stories. Because I think, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, um, a lot of the issue with sexual assault and child abuse is that people don't think about how real it is or how often it happens or they think it's a myth or they think people are lying. And the more these stories are told and the more people listen to other people's stories, the more, I hope, optimistically people start to believe these things. Yes, exactly. So, you know, reading, sharing, talking, all of these things actually do have a measurable effect. And um, the fact that we have social media now where people can connect in ways they never could before is really very powerful. Um, I think I've got a stat in front of me right now. Last year, there were 280 cases of teen trafficking just in the greater Toronto area. So that's a city, the closest city to me with 2 million people. And that's just one city. And I think they have here over 300,000 in the U.S. So, I mean, it's, they're now targeting, traffickers are targeting children as young as 12. So young women, I forget what the statistics are for women in their 20s and 30s, but the chances of an unwanted sexual advance or an assault is, what is it, one in five? I mean, it's incredibly high. So um, the only way to prevent this from happening is to keep talking about it, <laughs> really. I mean, you have to keep talking about it. One of the reasons I think why, you know, particularly child sexual abuse flourished and all of these forms of sexual violence flourished was because of the secrecy around sex itself for so long. I mean, you think about the Judeo-Christian um, traditions that most of us um, grew up in and our cultures have been based in. Um, sex was a dirty word. You didn't discuss it. And not discussing it made it possible for um, predators to uh, abuse and shame um, their victims. You know, like when you look at Jeffrey Epstein, I think about those poor young girls. Like initially, you know, there, he was he was a master of um, uh, predator speak, you know, coming framing things in this very kind of normalizing way. Well, I, you know, I just want a massage. And, you know, the girl agrees to the massage. And then once she's agreed to it, now she's in trouble. Something terrible has happened. He's, you know, violated the boundary in the arrangement. And now she's stuck. And what happens? The shame used to fall on the victim. Oh, it must be my fault because, 
you know, I agreed to this thing, but of course I didn't agree to what actually happened. But, right. you know, and that's, and all of that flourishes in an atmosphere of secrecy and shame. And so you really, uh, the only way to fight against that shame and that secrecy is to, of course, end the secrecy and, and write about it, talk about it, read about it. And I think about reading, you know, it's funny, we often think, well, books, you know, are just entertainment. Not true. Um, one of the first things that, in, first books that inspired me to write or first authors that inspired me to write was Anais Nin. Because she was writing about sexuality. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I mean, I remember reading The Female Eunuch and thinking, wow, like there are other women out there actually thinking and talking about these issues. I had no idea as a young girl growing up that they that they even existed. So those books really changed my understanding of the world. Uh, those authors changed my understanding of the world and gave me permission to write myself. And and um, yeah, so that's what a wonderful thing. I mean, that's a really wonderful thing. Absolutely. Um, so what is next for you? Do you have any other big writing projects in the works? Oh, of course. Yeah, I have a couple of things. I've just um, finished the first book in a series, a YA series called The India Diaries. And it's about um, a very troubled, lonely young girl whose parents are getting divorced and she gets shipped off to a missionary school in India where she makes the best friend of her life, uh, a really outrageous, extroverted um, girl by the name of Chandika Jones, who's of mixed race. And uh, it's about the, it's about a friendship. And it's kind of like um, a cross between, uh, what would you say, um, uh, my brilliant friend and a passage to India. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I have a YA series and then I also have um, some nonfiction projects that I'm working on, a, um, a, an addiction memoir and um, a collection of short stories that take place in Mexico. So yeah, I always have a couple of projects. I tend to um, do a first draft of something, work on a concept and then let it sit. And uh, the way I take a vacation from one project is to work on a different project. And I let them marinate for periods of time because I find they need to do that. And uh, in my office, I, I have this big, um, what do you call that? It's a school blackboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a friend of mine found an old portable. You know, I don't know if you have this in the States, but at a certain point in Canada, they had all these portables because there were too many kids and they, they didn't fit into the school. So um, he found an old abandoned portable that had a blackboard in it. And I was like, oh, can you give me that blackboard? I would love to have a blackboard and put like plots and you know, things. Uh, and so um, I have one in my office. I'm looking at it right now. And so, uh, yeah, I, I scroll in different colors of chalk on that. And uh, yeah, so a couple of things in the works. Before you go, you have to tell me about your pets because both squad goals, we're all about <laughs> reading with our pets with us. So like, you know, we have some, we, we have representatives from um, the cat lovers and the dog lovers, but you have chickens, right? Yeah, I thought that was so cute about your website. I really love seeing my pets. Pets, of course, you know, really reflect uh, their owners. And so it's so cute. It's very adorable. And yes, I'm a big, huge pet lover. And I used to have two dogs. Unfortunately, I'm allergic to cats. So I can't have cats anymore. But I grew up with cats, Persian cats and Siamese cats. So I do like cats. And um, so now I have um, just a little... um, uh, miniature Schnauzer, which was my mother's dog. She came from Mexico, and she's quite a character. And then we also have two chickens, although um, 
we used to have three chickens and we called them the Dixie chicks, but I'm afraid that one of them met her demise a couple of oh, weeks ago. No. And I'm, I'm sad to report. <laughs> I know it was terrible because she was so beautiful. But what happened is uh, we live in the country and of course, guess what? Everything loves to eat chicken. And um, oh. so you have to be really careful. And we try to let ours go free range. Like I let them wander around during the day, but I have to keep an eye out for foxes and things. And I think what happened is that uh, we've got a possum who's taken up uh, residence under the porch. And um, so, yeah, so we're going to have to flush him out because, uh, yeah, one of the chickens was harmed. And the thing about chickens that people don't know is chickens are actually quite affectionate. Like, you can pick them up and pet them. Yeah, mine, mine, the coop is right outside my office. So when I come into my office, they can hear me and they start making a racket, like, let us out, let us out, you know, and they know I bring them treats and stuff. So they know, you know, let's get her attention. And apparently, uh, I was, I'm always Googling chickens, but apparently they also can under, they have a vocabulary. They understand um, something like 35 different calls and they have different calls for predators from the air and predators from the ground, and they have little affectionate noises they make, and you know they're really they're much more um, multifaceted than you would think. So yeah, I'm pretty fond of the chicken. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking <laughs> with me. Is there anything else that I'm forgetting? I guess um, I don't know if we need to say trigger warning when we talk about um, these issues. Um, and I just I guess I just want to say because I know there'll be so many women out there listening who will have had um, violent experiences and I just want to give them hope and I think um, it's really important to remember in spite of the fact that you know the history for women has not been great around the world and there are so many countries still around the world where women are not not listened to and where predators get away with some terrible things the fact is that the world is changing very slowly but it does change and, you know, I think there's a great quote from uh, Mahatma Gandhi, I forget what it is, but, you know, basically tyrants always fail. In the end, they will fall. And I think it's really important for young women, especially to to know that and uh, that their, their, their truth matters and um, the world will one day be a better place. I think that's a really great note to end on. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you so much, Emily. It's nice to meet you. This is really fun. Oh, my God. That was so good, Emily. (laughs) Thank you. Tried so hard. I loved it. Okay. Oh, we have a listener feedback, too. One listener feedback, and let me Fresh. tell you, this one is hot off my text messages. <laughs> okay. Uh, friend of the pod, Janet. Yeah. Janet. Uh, Janet. That's right. She has written in. You might remember Janet from our episode about uh, sharp objects. Mm-hmm. If you haven't checked that out, go back, check that out. You'll hear Janet's wonderful musings. Here are a few more of them. Uh, this is in regards to our little woman episode. She said, um, basically she said, I love that movie. Lots of agreement with what you guys said. It felt like a nod to writers and creators, especially. And I love the Joe soliloquy so much. And yes, Kelly, you should get it tattooed on your back. Also, the choose your own adventure ending was perfect for those who want the happy ending and those who want the real Louisa May Alcott ending. Also, 
We need a Louisa May Alcott biopic. Yes. Yes. So that is what Janet says. I agree. I agree, Janet. I think it's a good way to describe it to say choose your own ending. Like, choose your own adventure. Yeah. Ending. I liked it. Yeah. Thanks, Janet. Yeah, we, we like it. Thank it's hard you, to really say much about a movie that you like. It's just I like, know, yeah, it is. Like it. It's easier to just talk about why you don't like stuff. Because that's the way I am. All right. Cool. That was our listener feedback. If you want to do feedbacks, you know what to do. You can text me if you got yeah. my number. I'm not giving it out. <laughs> um, you can also email us at the squad at booksquadgoals.com. Or you can tweet at us. You can Instagram us. You can yell at us on Facebook. Basically, just reach out. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably, with almost 100% guarantee, we will read your feedback on the episode. It's true. What's on the blog? What's on the blog? Listen up, Batch Nation. We're back. We're back, and we're not classy bitches all the time. Batch Nation, listen up. <laughs> Recap. <laughs> Recap. Exactly. Weekly. Recaps are Coming here. at you. And Kelly is subbing for me right now. Or will Risk It for the Biscuit win? We don't Risk know. It for the Biscuit is, is a great name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got it from the yeah, girl, the drunk ass girl that said it. I didn't make it up. So names you got it. Risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> um, I have a blog post today about the film 1917, which might win mm-hmm. Best Picture. Who fucking knows? It's a crazy world out there. Um, it did just win yeah. Best Picture at the one of the award shows. That's like. When they win things there, it often ends up winning at the Oscars. Like, the Producers Guild or some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it wasn't that one. It was a different one. Ah. There were, like, two this weekend, I think. But anyway, it's been winning a lot of things, and I saw it on Friday, and I uh, thought I'd write a little bit about it, because there is a lot of angry discourse on the film Twitter about whether or not this movie deserves to be nominated for things. And Mm. you know what? I think it's good. I think it's not um, what I want to win, but if it does win, I won't be furious. There are other things that if they do win, I will be furious. So, Did you know that Jojo Rabbit and Little Women directed themselves? (laughs) Yeah. Shocking how that happened. It's wild. I know. Um, I'm not if Todd salty. Phillips, I swear to God, if Todd Phillips, I can, okay, I'm not even going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, what else? I feel like worst case scenario is Tarantino wins, but. Yeah. Fuck See, I wouldn't be surprised if that won. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, but I'll also be pissed. Yeah. Because it's like, just the, like. Talking about a uh, award season that's, like, extremely white, that yeah. movie is, like, the epitome of white man movies. Yeah. And it's also just, like, a giant <laughs> circle jerk because, like, yes. Hollywood loves to be, like, a movie about us? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. 100% love it. Um, Which is why I was so pissed for those three seconds I thought La La Land won. <laughs> Thank God that was wrong. Uh, I like oh, La La Land. Oh, man, I was so mad. But... Uh. 
Ugh. It's not great. Um, Moonlight is a much better movie. Yeah. I would agree. Much better. I was very happy that Moonlight won. Um, I was very disappointed with La La Land. That's a whole nother episode. Oh my Speaking gosh. of mediocre right, white people. Emma Stone can't sing or dance. Just Riverdale. Saying. Go ahead. Speaking of me. <laughs> Mary and I did a Riverdale post that a we check promised. In. A check-in. Some of our predictions came no true. Questions. Some didn't. <laughs> He's back at the fountain. It's a, it's a shit show, as mm-hmm. usual. So, Speaking of shit shows, <laughs> I also did a check-in on you, now that season two is up. Mm-hmm. Um, you might recall, if you're a Books by Goals historian, that back in the day when season one was airing on Lifetime, I did a little uh, review of the first couple of seasons. We were so young then, so innocent, I thought... I really hope this peace girl makes it. She doesn't. Just spoiler. Spoiler. Uh, but everyone dies in that show, y'all. Anyway, um, so I have reviewed season two, and I have feelings, and I'm still very confused about whether I like the show or not. Oh, so gosh. I'm going to have to tune in to season three and keep figuring it out. What but, if you never you know. figure it out? You know, it won't be the first time. <laughs> Uh, I wrote a blog post about DC Inc., which is a line of young adult graphic novels from DC, one of the big, uh, three publishers. Uh, these books are really interesting and cool from, like, a YA perspective and a comic book perspective, so I wrote a little post sort of talking about some of those books and sort of my expectations for the future of those books, And I hope I can do a check-in after some more come out and write about them again. Most importantly, Charlie Baby, (laughs) pop goddess, Charlie XCX. Todd and I wrote a Charlie XCX starter back, starter back, starter pack (laughs) in the vein of Kelly and Susan's Carly Rae Jepsen starter pack. It was hard because we just kind of wanted to put every single song she's ever done on there. Same with Carly um, Rae Jepsen. So we had a similar problem. You know, it's very. We did, you know, do a shout out to the song that Charlie XCX did with Carly Rae Jepsen, which is I know. I still need bop. to go through the posts and listen to the songs. It's not like she's got so many good songs, like lots of what I call nasty bangers. Mm. It's good. She's great and like a really like sex positive. Uh, LGBTQ plus positive, like great, nice. great uh, artist, and has some good music. Is a pop visionary. So Todd and I wrote that. Todd and I also wrote first impressions of Survivor season forty, season wow. thirty nine. Left a bad taste in my mouth, but I agreed to be back <laughs> this season because. Uh, season 40 is all people who have won before. So that's interesting. You know, it's all people who have played and won the game before. So did a first. It's like an all-star season. It is. It is. It's not, they're not calling it all-stars because Survivor All-Stars was the season where Richard Hatch uh, sexually assaulted a woman and everyone called the woman crazy. So all-stars has a bad connotation (laughs) in Survivor Lands. 
Um, they're calling it like winter. I, yeah, something dumb. <laughs> it's something dumb, and it has a dumb acronym, but um, I am excited about it because some of my favorite contestants are coming back. Also, I hope it's a really long acronym that spells out winner. No, it's just something like winner takes all or winners of the idols. I don't know. Also, <laughs> YA book club. Yeah! Emily and I are going to talk <laughs> about... talking about... Yeah. Sorry, go no, ahead. No, you go. Oh, I just was... Oh, okay. Well, we're talking <laughs> about something about sweet... Or, or It's right here. I got it. There's something about sweetie. I'm showing it to you guys like you can see. The um, cover is very cute. Sa- it's very cute. She's got paint on her face. Or not paint, you know. Oh my gosh. Holy... Colored powder. Yes. Thank you. See, this is me being a dumb white person. Example number 552. Anyway. And on the back, they're running. Yes. But I, again, if you are a Book Squad Goals historian, you might remember back in our first best of Mm -hmm. um, episode that uh, I listed when Dimple met Rishi as one of my favorite things of 2017. Years Um, ago. This is, I know, this is a book by the same author, still holding it up like you guys can see. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it just makes me me feel good. Um, This is a book by the same author, and it's in the same universe. Um, So uh, Rishi, I know, is mentioned because his younger brother is... A main character in this book. Um, so that's really exciting. It's by Sandia Menon. This is her third book, mm-hmm. and she has a newer book out already, but you know, one at a time, guys. Mm-hmm. One yeah. at a time. I'm very excited. I'm excited. It's very cute so far. Yes, she's very she's good at writing like very cute, fun YA romances, which is just kind of like what I'm in the mood to read right now. It's just something like light and fun and sweet. Also, I've got two other blog posts coming up. What will they be? (laughs) We'll find out. Your own adventure. (laughs) We'll find out. Yeah. I'm open to suggestions. And I haven't been writing anything. Well, because you get married. Getting married. And she will not be on our next episode because she'll be getting married. We're preparing to do that. We'll miss and, her. And or honeymooning. And or honeymooning. Um, yeah, I think I will have just when are you? Where are you yeah. going on your honeymoon? Paris. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to France, but that's not... I won't be there for the next episode. It's just like... Just preparations. It's the and day off work that I took after the... Yeah, morning. I was oh, just... I just couldn't remember where you were going, but now I'm like, and I won't duh, be reading France. She won't be reading <laughs> yeah. She's going to be doing some yeah, stuff. Not till April, though. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of reading a book that Susan will not be reading, <laughs> uh, our next other episode is on the remaking by <gasps> Clay McLeod. I don't have his name. Yes. Up. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yep. Remember when I pronounced it McLeod because mm-hmm. I'm an idiot? Uh, Clay McLeod Chapman. And then I helped you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so we're going to be talking about that book. And then on the next 
book episode, also led by me, we'll be reading The Need by Helen Phillips. I realize that I'm calling it a book episode and an other episode, even though both of the episodes will be about books, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. It's a book episode and another book episode. Yeah. And you know what? I'm happy about it because that gives me an excuse to read more. And I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but last year was the first time in the history of me being on Goodreads that I met my goal for reading. Um, Good job. And I've been on Goodreads since like 2011. So it was a big moment for me. And I would not have done it without Book Squad goals. Aww, yeah. I'm so happy. Um, so you can follow us on social media. We are at Book Squad Goals on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email us at the squad at booksquadgoals.com. Our website is booksquadgoals.com. Our blog is booksquadgoals.com slash blog. You can also send us feedback via the form on our website. And one thing you could do that would make us really happy is give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is how other people will find us. And... We know you want other people to find us. Mm-hmm. You may have noticed that we have ads at the beginning and end of the podcast now because we're fancy like that. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So fancy uh, for listening. So, yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that also as a thing because recently one of our listeners was like, did they put ads on here without telling you? And we were like, no. no. We yeah, she was like, we how just... dare they? <laughs> we chose that. And I was like, no, we chose it. Yeah, uh, this is us. We're selling yep. out. Proud um, of it. Proud sellouts. Uh, so yeah, please uh, give us a rating and review. We would appreciate it so much. And please send us feedback on anything. L- like seriously, if you listen to an episode that came out like like six months ago and you just now read the book, please send us feedback. Yes. Like we will read it. We don't or- care. We love feedback. In my opinion, if there's a book you really enjoyed recently. Yeah. And want to shout it out into the universe. You write us whatever you want. Yeah. Write us about your day. Um, just please talk to us. Mm-hmm. We appreciate your support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyone? Anything no. else? That's it. Bye. Cool. We did it. Uh, Happy wedding, Susan. Happy wedding, Susan.